You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A couple of things before we get started. First off, there are a couple of uh, short mentions of animal abuse and one of suicide in the latter part of this episode. So if you're sensitive to that, I would suggest cutting out a little early. Also, this is the second episode of a, um, well, who knows how many part series, officially, loosely centered around evolution and the descent of man. This one is picking up right where the last one ended, so I recommend going back and listening to it first if you haven't already. Don't worry, I will wait. Ready? All right, let's go. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. This week's episode, Link Missing, Part 2. In the late 1860s, with the defeat of soapy Sam Wilberforce and Richard Owen, it seemed like Darwinism was set to take its place as the cornerstone of the life sciences. There was only one problem. Nobody believed it. And I mean, pretty much nobody. Now, don't get me wrong. People didn't reject Darwin exactly. In fact, you'd probably be surprised to see how few people there were who actually said outright that new species didn't arise from earlier ones. The creationist movement that still exists today didn't really get moving until the first decades of the 20th century, and the young earth creationists, or biblical literalists, didn't coalesce as a significant force until later still. After Origin of Species, the majority of people, or at least the majority of educated people, accepted the evidence. The idea had already been growing in popularity since Lamarck and Chambers. Arguably, it had started growing even earlier, with Darwin's grandfather Erasmus. And Charles had laid out the case so thoroughly and convincingly that it was hard to argue with. So yeah, most people accepted that plants and animals change from one species to another over time. And a lot of them called that idea Darwinism and called themselves Darwinists. But they weren't. Because Darwin's earth-shattering insight wasn't that species changed, it was how they changed. Natural selection. And on that, Chucky D got little support. As we've talked about in earlier episodes, there were some good reasons to doubt the specifics of Darwin's theory. For starters, there was the problem of time. When Darwin published Origin in 1858, he was working under the assumption that the Earth was incredibly old, hundreds of millions of years old, because his friend and mentor Charles Lyell had seemed to have figured that out. 
Before Lyle, most geologists had figured that major features like mountains, valleys, oceans, and islands were created quickly, like very quickly. The theory, known as catastrophism, was pioneered by Georges-Louis Leclerc, Comte de Buffon. Buffon figured that the Earth had started out as a big ball of molten magma, which was more or less perfectly spherical, and he figured that it had cooled and continued to cool from the outside in. As the hot parts in the substrata got colder, they caused violent contractions and expansions, huge mega-earthquakes that snapped the surface, almost instantly shooting mountains high into the sky or submerging plains in new, fast-filling seas and lakes. Lyle found the whole notion suspicious. He looked at a Grand Canyon. He didn't know about the Grand Canyon, but there are plenty of canyons that are pretty grand to choose from, and thought that something much smaller might be responsible. Like rain. Rain forms rivers which flow downstream, slowly eroding rock, until, ta-da, a canyon. Sediment settles and is compressed into rock, which is lifted off the seafloor. Lava cools, hardens, and layers until it reaches mountainous heights. It all made perfect sense. It just needed time. Lyle's competing theory to catastrophism, called uniformitarianism, was only partly right, of course. Lyle had no idea about plate tectonics or a good number of other things necessary to make sense of the shape of the Earth. But it was a lot better than catastrophism, especially in that it looked more like actual science. It was based on observation of forces still at play all around us, whereas Buffon's was pure speculation, more like a thought experiment than a scientific theory. As we talked about in It's a Date, Buffon experimented with models, cannonballs, which he heated up until they were molten, then he spun them and measured how long they took to cool. Analogizing from there, he figured that the Earth was created 75,000 years ago, although in his notebooks he estimated it could be more like 3 million. Lyle, on the other hand, said the planet must have been around for at least 240 million years and thought it possible that it was much older even than that, perhaps infinitely old. Under that premise, evolution through natural selection made perfect sense. Evolution as Darwin saw it was a slow and grueling process, but with hundreds of millions of years to play with, anything was possible. Then came Lord Kelvin. In 1862, less than two years after Origin of Species came out, Kelvin announced that he had come up with the upper limit for the age of the sun. We talked about this in It's a Date 2, so I won't belabor the details too much here, but essentially Kelvin had done the math on how much heat something with the sun's mass could let off for how long. Unfortunately, Kelvin didn't know about relativity or fusion or fission or radioactivity, so he was coming at the question of the sun's heat from a purely mechanical, thermodynamic angle. And according to that angle, the big ball of burning gas he was circling around had only been doing its thing for about 24 million years. Both he and Darwin knew that wasn't enough time for natural selection to do all its work. I should say that Kelvin had a bit of motivated reasoning going on here. He disliked and distrusted Darwin's theory, and to one degree or another he had set about trying to date the sun specifically to discredit it. But the point still stood. Kelvin's conclusion was quite uh, wrong, but nobody would have the ability to even partially counter it until the discovery of radiation in 1896, and even that was a bit of a stretch. 
After Kelvin took a direct shot at him and his theory with his son dating, Darwin not only removed his own estimate of the age of the Earth from future editions, but all mentions of time scale altogether. There was another issue which we've also already talked about before, and that is that Darwin did not understand where babies came from and how traits were transmitted between parents and children. I've explained this at least three or four times in Let's Talk About Sex, Babies and The Greater Good, and I believe in something from nothing to, so again, I'll just give a short version here. When Origin of Species released, an Augustinian friar by the name of Gregor Mendel was already underway with his experiments on peas, which he published in 1865. Mendel had single-handedly determined the basic laws of inheritance, but his paper was presented at an obscure natural history society in Moravia with a frustratingly bland title, Experiments on Plant Hybridization. Barely anyone heard his speech or read his paper, and nobody, maybe not even Mendel himself, understood its implications until the early 20th century, which left Darwin and everyone else who was trying to riddle out the mechanics of evolution in an awkward position. Darwin's contribution to the question was a hypothesis called pangenesis. The gist was that every cell in an organism's body must produce little tiny bits he named gemules, which contain their attributes. So a blue eye lets off blue eye gemules, a brown eye lets off brown eye gemules, etc. These gemules circulate throughout the body via the bloodstream and collect in the gonads where they become sex cells. Then those sex cells merge and blend during intercourse, and that's where babies come from. Pangenesis didn't work, and it didn't work in spectacularly ironic fashion. First of all, since every part of your body was constantly shedding off new gemules, it followed that any changes made to your body would be transmitted to future children. If you lost one of those beautiful baby blues of yours, your sex cells wouldn't just stop saying blue, they'd stop saying I. This left the door open to Lamarckism, we'll get to it, which Darwin had to accept as playing a small part in evolution. Pangenesis was also far more speculative than Darwin's normally careful thinking, which put off Thomas Henry Huxley. Huxley was so uncomfortable with pangenesis that he almost convinced Darwin to leave it on the cutting room floor. But Huxley ultimately blinked and told Darwin to include it, writing, Somebody rummaging among your papers half a century hence will find pangenesis and say, See this wonderful anticipation of our modern theories, and that stupid-ass Huxley prevented his publishing them. That's the direct quote. But Darwin should have followed Huxley's instincts. Not only did it aid the cause of the Lamarckians, but pangenesis ended up hurting natural selection. In 1867, Henry Fleming Jenkins, a Scottish engineer responsible for the invention of the cable car, of all things, published a late review of Origin in which he did the math. If the traits of both parents were blended, as in pangenesis, then evolution through natural selection was impossible. If an individual in a population developed a new beneficial trait, then when they reproduced with an individual who didn't possess that trait, the two would compromise. The resulting child would only have half the beneficial trait of its one mutant parent. And since that half-mutant child would eventually have to mate with another normie, their progeny would only have a quarter of the trait. Over just a couple of blending generations, any advantage would be washed out. Pangenesis, a theory Darwin concocted specifically to explain natural selection, was instead utterly incompatible with it. It had to be one way or the other. 
and most decided that of the two, Pangenesis was the keeper. There was a third problem with Darwin's theory too, and it would eventually prove the most difficult one to solve, altruism. How could evolution as Darwin proposed it account for selfless behaviors that benefited others at the cost of the individual? We already covered that exhaustively in The Greater Good, so I'm not going to rehash it here. I don't have to, because while Darwin himself saw it as the biggest issue to his work, it didn't seem important to most of his detractors in the latter half of the 19th century. For the most part, the characters in this story were instead focused on two difficulties which Darwin, uh, correctly, thought were meaningless distractions. The first of which was the lack of physical evidence. If every living thing on the planet descended from earlier living things back to a small number of common ancestors, then why weren't people pulling fossils out of the ground that showed transitional species, missing links, as the phrase went, all the time? But Darwin thought it would have been strange if there were a lot of physical evidence. He figured that the vast majority of living things didn't end up fossilized, and the vast majority of living things didn't end up producing offspring which survived through enough generations to evolve. So the chances of a missing link being preserved were doubly small. But that was the real issue most had with natural selection. It wasn't time or heredity or altruism or even the fossil record. It was the sheer, cold, mechanical logic of it. Natural selection meant that humans were just another animal, derived through the same processes as every other living thing from marmot to mushroom. What's more, that process seemed to have no need whatsoever for the divine. No god was necessary to make it work. Worse still, if there were a god and he worked through Darwin's means, he was unthinkably cruel and wasteful. In Darwin's view, life was, like the Buddhist said, suffering. The normal state of being was pain, want, hunger, and death in imponderable quantities. And most of it came to nothing. The great tree of life was mostly dead leaves and broken branches. Only the luckiest of the lucky flourished. And lucky was another operative word, because not only did most living things suffer and die without producing a lineage, those few who didn't had no say in the matter. If you were born sickly, weak, and stupid, but managed, through sheer grit to thrive, to better yourself and your position, nature rewarded you with a golden plaque emblazoned with the words, Tough Titties, in beautifully cruel calligraphy. Your offspring wouldn't benefit from all your late night studying and thrice weekly gym visits. They'd inherit the same pathetic mediocrity you had worked so hard to escape. If you managed to outrun your genes, they'd catch up with your family down the line. Virtually no one besides Darwin was able to look the profound indifference of nature in the face without flinching. Not because it was impossible or curious or difficult to comprehend intellectually, it just fucking sucked. Luckily, there was an alternative. It came from, take a wild guess, no, go on, you know, I don't even need to say it. Here, I'll get it started, you fill in the blanks. It came from... Got it in one. In his Degeneration Animalium, fucking Aristotle had laid out two ideas that stuck to Western thought so hard that they're debatably still leaving their residue on us today. The first was that the makeup of all living things was unchangeable and immutable. Every living thing had a purpose, or telos, which determined their ideal form. 
This, for Aristotle, explained why many species had so much in common. Four legs and a snout, two wings and a beak, seven fins and gills. Dogs and cats were related, but only in the sense that their purposes were fairly similar, which made their forms fairly similar too. Aristotle didn't stop there. He arranged all kinds of life on a hierarchy, which he called a scala naturae, or ladder of nature, with plants at the bottom and humans at the top. In medieval Europe, Aristotle's ladder blended with Christian theology to become the great chain of being, which put people again at the top of existence, except for when they counted God and the angels. By the turn of the 19th century, the great chain of being was kind of coming unlinked, but the ideas behind it, that living things were determined by their ingrained purposes and that they could be ranked by their value and complexity, was still going strong. The most direct progeny of Aristotle were George Cuvier and his disciples. We have talked about Cuvier a number of times before, mostly because he was the first person to prove that species went extinct, and because he helped expand and clarify Linnaean taxonomy. But he was also vociferously opposed to evolution, which is curious, right? The guy who figured out that things died off, who showed once and for all that animals from the past didn't exist in the present, and those in the present didn't exist in the past, and who helped classify life into related species, genuses, families, and so forth, nevertheless opposed the most logical explanation for how all of those things could be true? It is weird. But Cuvier agreed with the Comte de Buffon that the history of Earth was marked by cataclysms. Cuvier figured that the most recent of these was the Great Flood described in the Noah story in Genesis. Each time one of these cataclysms occurred, he figured, God stepped in and created a new host of life to perfectly fit within the post-catastrophe environment. Obviously, Cuvier's reasoning was driven by religious belief, but that wasn't the whole story. He also had two secular arguments on his side. In his detailed and voluminous studies of animals, both modern and ancient, he had observed that all species appeared to be perfectly balanced to thrive in their native environments, and that each part of each animal was perfectly in tune with all the others. In 1798, he examined the body of a South American crab-eating raccoon and remarked, If an animal's teeth are such as they must be in order for it to nourish itself with flesh, we can be sure without further examination that the whole system of its digestive organs is appropriate for that kind of food, and that its whole skeleton and locomotive organs and even its sense organs are arranged in such a way as to make it skillful at pursuing and catching its prey. For these relations are the necessary conditions of existence of the animal. If things were not so, it would not be able to subsist. He called this the principle of the correlation of parts, and in Cuvier's thinking, it made evolution impossible. In order for mutations or variations to be beneficial, they would have to come in sets, he thought, and that just didn't make sense. He also had some physical evidence on his side, at least he believed he did. At the same time Cuvier was observing his raccoon, Napoleon Bonaparte was attempting to take over Egypt. He pretty much succeeded, but then got spontaneously bored and headed back to France. He brought with him a bunch of pillaged ancient Egyptian artifacts, including the Rosetta Stone. But what Cuvier found most interesting were the mummies. Not the mummified people, 
but the mummified animals, particularly cats, which had died thousands of years ago, yet remained indistinguishable from their modern counterparts. You see, said Cuvier, in 4,000 years, the cat has remained the cat unchanged. Pre-Darwinian evolutionists like Lamarck, we'll get to him, I promise, argued that Cuvier had it all wrong. The process took hundreds of thousands of years, not a slim few millennia. Cuvier rolled his eyes. To him, it seemed like his opponents were just manufacturing time out of the blue to serve their arguments. But even if he granted the existence of all the extra years imaginable, the problem remained. A 400,000-year-old cat could only be 100 times as different from a modern cat as the 4,000-year-old mummified cat. The difference between the latter two was zero, and you could multiply that by whatever number you liked, 400,000, 400 million, and the answer remained the same. Cats were cats always. By the time Origin of Species came out again in 1859, Cuvier had been dead for nearly 30 years, but his premier protege was more than alive and kicking, and he took up the mantle his mentor had laid down. Louis Agassiz. A few figures exemplify the term mixed bag, quite like Louis Agassiz. He's the epitome of the sort of person we end up talking about on this show. When he was right, he was very right. And when he was wrong, God help us all. So let's start our walk on the sunny side of the street, shall we? Agassiz was a brilliant scientist, chiefly responsible for a whole lot of really good things we take for granted today. Few people could stand up to Agassiz in his chosen fields, particularly zoology, paleontology, and ichthyology. It was that last one where he first really distinguished himself, analyzing, examining, and taxonomizing the fish of the Amazon River. And that might not sound especially astonishing, but the detail and clarity and cold-eyed empiricism with which Agassiz observed things is the stuff of legends. Literally legends. The modernist American poet Ezra Pound, another dumbfoundingly mixed bag of a guy, opened his 1934 book ABC of Reading with The Parable of the Sunfish, which goes like this. A postgraduate student equipped with honors and diplomas went to Agassiz to receive the final and finishing touches. The great man offered him a small fish and told him to describe it. Postgraduate student, that's only a sunfish. Agassiz, I know that. Write a description of it. After a few minutes, the student returned with the description of the ichthys heliodiplodocus, or whatever term is used to conceal the common sunfish from vulgar knowledge, family of helichothernicus, etc., as found in textbooks on the subject. Agassiz again told the student to describe the fish. The student produced a four-page essay. Agassiz then told him to look at the fish. At the end of three weeks, the fish was in an advanced state of decomposition, but the student knew something about it. While Pound's version of events was poetic, it was hardly embellished. More than one of his students talked about being locked in a room with a turtle or fish or lobster and forced to look at it for as long as it took for them to actually see what they were looking at, like Agassiz did. He made perhaps his most consequential scientific contribution in 1837 when, after visiting the Swiss Alps and observing the large conspicuous rocks that sat all over the open fields, he posited that they had been moved there by glaciers and that the distribution of these glacial erratics indicated that the Earth had suffered through what he called 
an ice age. Agassiz came to America in 1846 and became a professor at Harvard, founding the Lawrence Scientific School, the university's graduate engineering and science program, and opening the Museum of Comparative Zoology there, too. And for one last bright spot, he was an early member of the ASPCA and helped set some standards, subpar though they were, for the treatment of animals in captivity. And then come the shadows. Up until very recently, Agassiz's name and image were commemorated all around the world, particularly in America and Switzerland, where zoos and schools bore his name and statues of his likeness. But in the early 2000s, people began reevaluating whether they really wanted Agassiz put on such a public pedestal because of, you guessed it again, racism. Man, what a racist Agassiz was. I know there are still some people out there who defend him, and if any of you are listening, please stop. The particular features of Agassiz's racism align with his part in this story perfectly. Like his mentor Cuvier, Agassiz believed that life did not evolve, and more specifically, that species did not share common ancestors. And, like his mentor Cuvier, he believed that periodic catastrophes created mass extinctions, at which time God must show back up to repopulate the Earth with new species. The Ice Age, he had discovered, presented a new kind of catastrophe, and the fossil record showed that extinctions came at both its beginning and its end. But Agassiz's version of catastrophism went a step further even than Cuvier's. Each species was not only unrelated to members of its genus, but even geographically isolated subspecies must come from different ancestors. Like, for huge, glaring, bold-faced example, humans. There was no shared ancestor for humanity, Agassiz came to believe. There was no Adam and Eve, or rather, there were many, an Adam and an Eve for each race of humanity, each perfectly tempered by God for the given circumstances of their original habitat. This made sense of a problem biblical scholars had been dreading for a couple hundred years now. How did so many people get so far around the world after God destroyed everyone but Noah and his family in the flood? The answer, Agassiz figured, was simple. God didn't destroy everyone in the flood. That was just what happened to one line of people, descended from one of the Adams and Eves around the world. The real ones. The white ones. Now wait a minute, wait a minute, screamed the last remaining Agassiz stands. He never said that. He never talked about race in terms of spiritual or historical supremacy. In fact, in a famous and or infamous article for the Christian Examiner, Agassiz went out of his way to extol a spiritual, if not a biological, unity of all people. There are two distinct questions involved in the subject which we have under discussion, he wrote, the unity of mankind and the diversity of origin of the human races. We recognize the fact of the unity of mankind. It excites a feeling that raises men to the most elevated sense of their connection with each other. It is but the reflection of that divine nature which pervades their whole being. He goes really far out of his way to assure readers that his research and analysis on human races isn't influenced by prejudice nor by politics, and that it has nothing to say whatsoever on the question that was quickly leading the United States to war at the time, slavery. Which, to his minimal credit, Agassiz opposed. 
He also states towards the top of his paper that he has neither thoughts nor feelings about whether one race stands superior to another. He is merely a scientific observer, objective and dispassionate. And then he goes on to rank us. Guess who's at the top? What's more disturbing, what's much more disturbing, is that Agassiz knew his belief in co-atomism or polygenism was born from personal prejudice. He had begun his scientific life believing, like most people, both scientific and civilian, in the shared origins of all peoples. It was only when he came to America that his mind was changed. At one very specific moment, which he wrote about in a letter to his mother in 1846. And man, I am not even going to quote from that letter, even briefly, that is how fucked up it is. Stephen Jay Gould rediscovered it and wrote it up in a chapter of his 1980 book, The Panda's Thumb. If for some reason you want to peruse some extremely racist shit, you can go find it there. But in the briefest and most disinfected of summaries, Agassiz told his mother that his belief in the shared ancestry of humanity was shaken by one lunch date at a hotel in New York, where the servers and busboys were black. Agassiz was so offended by the mere existence of black people and specifically offended that they looked at him and handled his food that he decided right there and then that he couldn't be related to them, which he then developed into a so-called scientific theory, which was used to further discriminate against minorities for times to come. So fuck that dude. The good news, the only good news about Agassiz's views on race and evolution is that by the time he died in 1873, he was practically the last person still holding them. I mean, mostly his views on evolution died with him in 1873. Racism, as you may have noticed, continued on strong. And actually, that's the only line of defense of Agassiz that really seems worth considering, because it's not as if the other theories of the origins of species and of people weren't centered around white supremacy. They very, 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 very much were. Even Darwin, who is generally much better at surmounting his own biases than most, had some views which, when looked upon in conjunction with one another, well, they ain't great. So, say the Agassiz defenders, what makes him deserving of so much derision when nearly everybody, or nearly every white buddy, at least, of his time was just as flawed? And that, I thought, was a worthwhile thing to consider, until I read the letter he wrote his mom, which is how I got my new stance as stated QV, fuck that guy. Aside from its offensiveness, the main problem with Agassiz's origin theory was the same as his mentor Cuvier's and his hero, the Comte de Buffon. As far as arguments against evolution went, the idea that mutations couldn't be advantageous because organisms weren't modular was, if lacking in imagination, at least interesting. But what Buffon and Cuvier and Agassiz couldn't explain in scientific terms was anything. There was evidence in the geological record of catastrophes, Agassiz had pretty well proved his Ice Age theory, but what was the mechanism that created new life afterward? In the mid-19th century, God just made them wasn't seen as very convincing, especially since evolution was sitting there as a far more compelling alternative. But then, how to accept evolution while preserving superiority? The superiority of God, the superiority of humans, and, of course, the superiority of whites. Enter orthogenesis. 
Orthogenesis, or straight origin, is an ill-defined term and a whole lot of different people with a whole lot of different ideas can be thrown easily into the overly large mouth of the orthogenesis bucket. For our purposes, I'm going to be using orthogenesis broadly to encompass a number of people who believed that evolution happened, but that it was the result of some sort of directed force. In other words, orthogenic theories were a direct reaction to Darwin's theory of natural selection, which held that changes across generations were random, and the relative advantages and disadvantages of those changes were borne out in the struggle over resources and mates. Orthogenesis was attractive to a lot of different kinds of people for a lot of reasons. To the religiously inclined, natural selection seemed to suggest that God was either a non-existent, B, lazy, C, unfathomably cruel, or D, an idiot. Take Asa Gray, for example. Gray was one of the most prominent scientists in 19th century America, and far and away its most prominent botanist, having written the book on North American plants, which is still in circulation today, usually as Gray's Manual of Botany. He was a professor at Harvard, where he had an uneasy relationship with Agassiz and a good friend to many scientists around the world, including Charles Darwin. They met during one of Gray's visits to England in 1839 and were soon sharing letters back and forth across the Atlantic at a furious pace. And when one of those letters included a detailed outline of origin of species, Gray went from deeply circumspect to deeply convinced in record time. He helped secure the rights for the book's American release and provided information on North American plant distribution that bolstered Darwin's theory. Along with Thomas Henry Huxley and Joseph Hooker, he was among Darwin's most adamant and vocal supporters. However, Gray was also a devout Christian, and in his letters to Darwin, he tried to convince him that there was a designing divine hand in the action of natural selection. Darwin answered back that he didn't think his theory precluded the existence of God, but that he personally was unconvinced of the prospect. In a way, having the pious Gray in his corner was a valuable corrective for Darwin, whose loudest English defender was of course Huxley, who was outspoken in his disdain for religious thinking. Gray, conversely, published a book in 1876 entitled Darwiniana, in which he sought to square his faith with the new science, and to show the rest of the world that they needn't choose one or the other. Instead, Gray said, natural selection explained the propagation of life as a matter of law, law which he believed had been sent down by God. He contrasted the theological lather around Darwin with the lack of any such upset around the earlier work of Isaac Newton. No one thought that Newton's laws of motion encroached upon the divine mandate of heaven. They merely explained that mandate. And so it was for Gray with Darwin. At least for a while. In Darwiniana, Gray likened natural selection to a game of billiards. When a ball was struck, he asked, was its course the work of law or design? Both, he answered. The action of the ball is prescribed by the laws of physics, but the direction is determined by the player whose cue strikes it. Evolution, said Gray, works the same way. God builds the table, arranges the balls, sets the rules, and then he takes the shots. 
But there was a problem with this analogy. In the billiards game of natural selection, God made millions of shots on millions of balls, and very few of them reached the pockets. Most of the time, when God picked up his cue, he scratched. And in evolution, a scratch meant that something died. Asa Gray had found his way back to one of the main discomforts of Darwin's theory. If God made the rules, then why were the rules so haphazard and callous? And if God were the player, why did he miss so many shots? When Asa Gray first got his hands on Origin, he considered it the solution rather than the puzzle. The world had always been full of suffering and want and death, and everyone, from theologians to scientists to shit-shovelers, knew it. At least, he thought natural selection provided a meaning for it. Hardship was a part of God's plan, and natural selection made that plan less ineffable. But the randomness part perplexed him. That didn't seem very godlike. So, Gray postulated, mutation and variation weren't random. When God created the billiard table, he must have built little divots and valleys into it, which helped guide the balls to the pockets. We should advise Mr. Darwin, he wrote, to assume in the philosophy of his hypothesis that variation has been led along certain beneficial lines. While Gray is usually thought of as something like a theistic evolutionist rather than an orthogenesist, it's pretty much a distinction without difference. The cornerstone was a rejection of the randomness of variation Darwin had proposed. There had to be an underlying principle that guided evolution in a direction towards progress. And almost every scientist in the decades after Origin seemed to believe in some sort of orthogenetic power. What and why and how strong it was differed greatly. The original orthogenesis, for instance, wasn't particularly motivated by religion at all. Carl Van Nageli was a Swiss botanist who today is best remembered for being on the wrong side of biological science in the two most important instances of his century. In 1866, he received a letter and began corresponding with an Augustinian monk named Gregor Mendel. Mendel had been interbreeding different varieties of garden peas and over successive generations had made some intriguing observations about how traits were passed from parent to child. What Mendel had, of course, was the first correct theory of heredity, which, as we've already said, was totally overlooked and obscured until the turn of the century. Negley had it right there in front of him, and what did he do with it? He discouraged Mendel, told him to give it up, that it was no big deal. Because by 1866, Negley had his own theory, both of heredity and evolution, and what Mendel was saying didn't align with his expectations. That and he was an elitist who couldn't believe an amateur friar could make such an important discovery, but let's focus on his ideas. Negley's main sticking point with Darwin's theory of natural selection was that as far as he was concerned, a lot of traits present in both plants and animals were non-adaptive. How could the very fine, filigree-like patterns on some flowers have come about through evolution? What possible benefit could these tiny designs have that had made them dominant. Theodore Eimer studied butterflies and came to the same conclusion that Negley had. The bright colors and intricate designs of butterfly wings, he thought, weren't just non-beneficial, they were downright deleterious. They made the insects more conspicuous and therefore more prone to getting their asses eaten by birds, not in the fun way. 
Not in the fun way when I say getting their asses eaten. I mean in the... You know what I mean. And those birds had the exact same problem. Their flashy colors put them at risk from larger predators. It had to be. Both Negley and Eimer concluded that evolution was being driven by something other than natural selection. There had to be some sort of inner guiding principle which drove transmutation. And it must have some direction or objective in mind. Sir George Jackson Myvart thought he had proof. Myvart was an early supporter of natural selection too, having been won over to the cause by Darwin's bulldog himself, Thomas Henry Huxley. They met in the same year that Origin of Species was published and came to be fast friends. Unfortunately, Myvart was a devout Catholic, whereas Huxley was hostile to all religion and specifically to Catholicism. They fell out hard, and Myvart decided that natural selection was incompatible with God's creation, almost out of spite. Myvart rested his criticism on the eye, which he thought posed two serious problems to Darwin's theory. The first was one you've almost certainly heard before. How could such a thing have evolved gradually? What was the value of one-tenth of an eye? This one Darwin took apart pretty easily in his sixth edition of Origin. The advantage of having one-tenth of an eye was that it was ten times as good as having one one-hundredth of an eye. Darwin found examples of varying degrees of sight throughout the animal kingdom, from basic photosensitivity up through animals whose vision far outstripped ours. But the other part of Mybart's eye argument was harder to square. Cephalopods, like octopuses, have eyes which are pretty much the same as mammal eyes, at least as far as Mybart was concerned. Leave me alone, marine biologists. But they seemed to have developed them entirely separately. This is just one example among many of what is now commonly referred to as parallel evolution. South American and African anteaters look remarkably similar and fill the same ecological niche. One guess what that niche is? Oh man, you're on fire today! But each came to their form and behavior separately. Bats, we now know, have developed echolocation independently over and over again. Myvart said these things were evidence that life, or in his case God, had pre-planned all these traits, that every species was on an inevitable, progressive path, as if God had fired an arrow at the beginning of time, or hit a cue ball. Myvart's public criticism of Darwin was relentless, but for years he insisted privately that it wasn't personal. Up until Darwin's son, George, published a paper arguing that it should be easier for people to get divorced. It was a Louis Agassiz mixed bag of an article. George thought people should have more liberty and that wives especially should be able to escape abusive husbands. Oh, that's nice. But to him, that was mostly a matter of eugenics. George believed violence and madness were inheritable and that if women could more easily evade bad husbands, we could weed out the more base and vulgar races of humanity. I dare you to tweet an acceptable position on that. Myvart's response, though, was definitely suboptimal. He wrote a letter directly accusing George Darwin of being a pervert. And that was the end of any pretense of friendship between the Darwins and Myvart. 
Still, Charles took Meivart's position seriously, even as he denounced the man himself. Examples in support of orthogenesis seem to live around every corner. Birds, bats, butterflies, and even several things that didn't begin with B. But the real kicker was a beast, hey, that starts with B too, that had gone extinct some 8,000 years ago, the Irish elk. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Matt. Did you know that wombats poop cubes? Nope. Never heard that before. Did you know the unicorn is the national animal of Scotland, Ken? I didn't know, nor do I care. Neil, did you know that Liechtenstein is the only doubly landlocked country in Europe? Jeff, isn't that an American pop artist? Well, actually, it's both. If you want to learn things like that and more, join us each week on Triviality, a pub trivia-style game show podcast where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Listen in each week to answer general knowledge trivia alongside exciting guests from around the world. And we're here, too. Join us every Tuesday for new hour-long episodes of Triviality, plus tons of extra theme content on everything from The Office and Lord of the Rings to science and geography. And sometimes we even do sports. Find us on all your preferred podcast apps and take part in the fun of playing bar trivia without the need to wear pants. Real mature, Jeff. Forget it, Neil. It's triviality. In 1588, in County Meath, Ireland, an unknown person through unknown means discovered an unknown skull. The person and means are unknown only because of bad record keeping. Probably a poor peasant was out cutting peat for fuel. But the skull was unknown because nobody had ever seen anything like it before. It looked kind of like a deer skull, but decidedly larger. And it was attached to a set of antlers that measured 12 feet from tip to tip. This was the scientific find of the century. Unfortunately, that century was the 16th, so rather than do anything with it, it was sent to Queen Elizabeth's Secretary of State, Robert Cecil, who had it mounted on the wall of his family home. What made the Irish elk such a fantastic discovery wasn't just that its antlers were fucking huge! That would be important a bit later. What made it a fantastic discovery was that it was basically the first time that Europeans had encountered an animal that didn't seem to exist anymore. Or so they worried. It was about a century later that the Irish elk got its first real scientific examination and observation from Thomas Molyneux in Dublin. 
Molyneux was temporarily confused by the lack of living Irish elk on the island, since he believed, like everybody else at the time, that creation was perfectly balanced by God, and therefore no such thing as extinction could ever take place. But Molyneux had an out. He was in the lucky position of knowing that there was such a thing as a moose in North America, but even luckier, he didn't know enough about what it was to conclude it wasn't what he had. So there you go, no problem. There used to be moose on Ireland, but they all died of distemper, Molyneux speculated wildly, so now they only lived in Canada and such. And that served as a suitable enough explanation for the next 120 years until that darn Georges Cuvier showed up. Cuvier proved that extinction was possible and that it had happened to, among other things, the Irish elk, which was not a moose. But then why did it go extinct? Cuvier, of course, figured it was the result of one of those catastrophes, a flood probably, which regularly wiped out most life only to have it replaced with new life through means he was a bit hazy about. That explanation fell apart as science moved on from accepting stupid explanations, and in came a new one, which directly challenged Darwin. What people knew of Irish elks is that A, they had gigantic antlers, and B, they were all dead now. Therefore, A caused B. To the folks who weren't sold on natural selection, which was pretty much everybody except Darwin, it seemed obvious that the Irish elk was a cautionary tale about the nature of orthogenesis. The underlying principle which guides evolution must have gotten stuck on grow bigger antlers, and the Irish elk had obliged until its antlers were so big it couldn't fit through the forest or lift its head with ease. Which, yes, sounds absurd, but this persisted as the dominant theory into the 1930s. We're not going to get that far, though, so maybe it's worth focusing on Darwin, who agreed that the size of its antlers were the key to its extinction. And look, they were really, really fuck-off big. But he proposed that the elk had lived in an environment, grasslands, perhaps, where the antlers weren't a problem, and then when things got more arboreal, it was too late for adaptation to save them. Of the two possibilities, Darwin's seemed by far the weaker, especially because people were also finding fossils of other animals, which seemed to share the same issue proposed by orthogenesis. There were woolly mammoths who went extinct because their tusks got too big, and there were saber-toothed tigers who went extinct because their teeth got too sabered. Orthogenesis was out-competing natural selection. You catch that? Yeah, you caught that. Good work, you. And there was one more piece of evidence that, contrary to all sense and reason, seemed convincing to many of the people in this story. Though the idea technically predated him, I'm going to pin it on Ernst Haeckel, because this is all taking a lot more time than I'd anticipated, and anyway, I wanted to talk about Haeckel for another reason, which we'll get to in a tick. Haeckel was something of a cross between a Darwinian, a Lamarckian, and an orthogeneticist. And to him, the best evidence for evolution didn't come from theorizing or observing the Galapagos, or working in a laboratory, or even digging for fossils. The best evidence came from, instead, looking at fetuses. That's what he'd been doing, and he'd come to the same conclusion which Etienne Geoffroy Saint-Hilaire had a few decades earlier, that the embryonic development of animals mirrors their evolutionary history. Or, as Haeckel over-Latinly put it, ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. 
As a human fetus developed, for instance, it passed through phases where it resembled all of its ancestry. At one point, it's a fish, then a salamander, a bird, a monkey, a chimp, before it finally develops into a human. To bolster this theory, Haeckel published drawings he had made of different fetal stages, which were, make sure you're holding on to something, extremely inaccurate! Haeckel was no idiot, though. He had a point. The fetal development of animals, particularly vertebrates, really is quite informative of shared ancestry. Haeckel, in his enthusiasm, had simply taken a good idea too far, which was a bit of a habit. Like his embryo drawings, Haeckel also put together a sort of flip book of human ancestry, one of the first examples of the dawn of man trope, where monkeys walk alongside apes, alongside cavemen, alongside modern humans in ascending order. But Haeckel's drawings weren't suggestive of an idea, they were extremely specific, like 24 stages extremely specific, and in many ways, extremely wrong. The first recognizable mammal, which Haeckel assumed descended from the iguana, was the platypus, which then evolved into a lemur. The lemur evolved into a series of, uh, and this is a crucial detail, Asian monkeys, then an orangutan. That takes us up to stage 22, with the 24th being humans, and between them was the missing link. The term missing link has an interesting evolutionary history all its own, but I'd argue that it was with Haeckel that it truly reached its orthogenetic goal. And unlike many people who would go on to deploy the phrase, Haeckel didn't see his missing link as a problem. He figured he mostly knew what it looked like and how it lived. He had a name for it too, Pithecanthropus allulus, or ape man lacking speech. And just to make sure, he was as far over his skis as humanly possible, Haeckel said he knew where his link had come from and why it was now missing. In 1864, Philip Sclater made a proposal. Sclater was technically a lawyer, but his true love was zoology, and his work there is what he became known for. His 1864 proposal came from a problem he had misidentified years earlier. The island of Madagascar was chock-a-block full of lemurs, yet there were hardly any other lemurs in Africa, right next door. Meanwhile, in India and Southeast Asia, there were quite a few lemurs, even though Madagascar was far away. And we should pause here to note that he's already screwed up before he even got to his thesis. There aren't hardly any lemurs in Africa, there are no lemurs in Africa, and no lemurs in India or Southeast Asia either. They only live on Madagascar, but Sclater had understandably misidentified a number of species of small, big-eyed primates, like the slow loris and the bush baby, as being lemurs too. But forget that for a minute and indulge Phil, will ya? Phil considered lemur distribution, to his understanding, and saw an issue. Many Madagascarian lemurs, a good number of Asian lemurs, very few African lemurs. How could this situation have come about? Especially since Sclater knew nothing about the idea of plate tectonics. His proposal was that Madagascar had once been connected to Asia. That's correct. The Indian subcontinent, and to a lesser extent, Africa, via a no longer existent continent. That's incorrect. A literal land of lemurs he called Lemuria. Haeckel took one look at this hypothetical continent of Lemuria and, in his typically unrestrained style, 
declared it the cradle of humanity. The link had gone missing when Lemuria sunk into the Indian Ocean, but not before it provided a land bridge between Asia and Africa, where early humans migrated, evolving first around Indonesia, he figured based on absolutely fucking nothing. The lost continent of Lemuria, though, is a subject for another time, because while it started out as a geological and evolutionary conjecture, by the end of the 19th century it had transformed into a New Age magical Shangri-La, a central idea of an utterly incomprehensible cult that exerted disturbing influence over political and philosophical thought in the early 20th century. And do we have time for that right now? No, we do not, because we've got to talk about Lamarckism, goddammit. Jean-Baptiste Lamarck was born into circumstances both favored and dis. On the one hand, his family was technically part of the French aristocracy, but the coffers had been depleted by the time he was born, the 11th child. His father had hoped to send him to study with the Jesuits, but that plan fell completely apart in 1760 when he died, and even more so in 1764 when the Jesuits were expelled from France. So Jean-Baptiste instead went into the family business knighthood. He joined the French army, just in time to fight in the Seven Years' War against Prussia, which shaped his future in some real twisty ways. According to Alpheus Spring Packard's biography, which should be taken with a heavy dollop of salt since Packard was himself a neo-Lamarckian of the highest order, when Lamarck was just 17, his company was decimated by Prussian fire while attempting to hold a position, leaving only 14 soldiers and no officers to lead them. So, the remainders voted to put the spindly young Lamarck in charge, thinking he would freak out and order them to retreat, which they could then do without fear of reprisal since they'd just be following orders. Instead, Lamarck told them to defend their position, which they managed to just barely do until reinforcements arrived. The colonel in charge of the rescue elevated Lamarck to lieutenant on the spot, which was nice, but in celebration, one of his fellow soldiers apparently lifted him above his head, hurting his neck, inflaming his lymph nodes, and getting him sent back to Paris for recuperation. There he visited the Royal Garden and took up an interest in botany. When his officer's salary was reduced at the end of the war, he went out looking for a new career, and after a while attempting to become a doctor and then a banker, he settled on the botany he'd become so enamored with. Like Georges Cuvier, Lamarck was mentored by the Comte de Buffon, who was in charge of said royal garden, and when he died, his successor put Lamarck in control of the garden's herbarium. He grew more and more important to the royal garden, especially over the course of the French Revolution, when he had the very smart idea to rename the royal garden the Garden of Plants, so the peasants wouldn't guillotine the garden. He was named Professor of the Natural History of Insects and Worms at the National Museum of Natural History, and there he contributed a whole bunch to the budding field of biology, a word which he helped coin as a fixed science. He also possibly coined the term invertebrate and definitely did most of the hard Linnaean work of categorizing the animals in that phylum. Up until Lamarck, spiders, shrimp, crabs and the like were all classified as insects. Lamarck created the arachnid and crustacean classes and moved them to their proper places besides insects. 
It was also during this work that Lamarck began to suspect that there was some sort of natural transmutation of species, which he detailed in an 1809 book entitled Philosophie Zoologique, which would end up being his defining contribution to history. Well, uh, sort of. Here's the thing. You probably know what Lamarckism means, even if I hadn't just explained it in the last episode. Lamarck's famous example of his concept is the giraffe's neck, which he said must have attained its great length via many generations of shorter-necked giraffes craning to reach high leaves. When a giraffe stretched up to get higher purchase, it extended its neck ever so slightly, and that extension was then passed on to its children. This concept, that characteristics acquired during the lives of parents can be passed on to their offspring, is sometimes called soft inheritance, or, clumsily but accurately, inheritance of acquired characteristics. But usually, in common parlance, it is simply called Lamarckism. And that makes almost no sense. For starters, Lamarck didn't come up with the idea, not by the longest of long shots. Instead, it goes back at least as far as all our usual favorite figures. Hippocrates endorsed it, Pliny endorsed it, Galen endorsed it, and yeah, fucking Aristotle too. It's no fair putting the blame on those jokers though, because it honestly seems like you could have asked pretty much anyone, at any time whether they thought, as Lamarck's other famous example went, that a blacksmith gets stronger from hammering and his offspring inherit that strength, the whole of human history would have said, oh yeah, yeah, of course. That includes Darwin, who, as we've uh, frequently noted now, didn't understand how heredity worked. He allowed for Lamarckism in Origin of Species, and his blind stab at a theory for heritability more than tacitly endorsed acquired characteristics. This soft inheritance idea, which everybody already knew about and most everyone accepted, isn't even the point of philosophy zoologique. It's a second string player in Lamarck's own published theory. Why then does this idea, which predated our buddy Lamarck by at least two and a half thousand years, and which was endorsed and believed almost universally for that entire period and afterwards, take his name? That is a real toughie, actually. What set Lamarck's Lamarckism apart from Galen's and Aristotle's and Erasmus Darwin's and everybody else's is that Lamarck bothered to try to make it make sense. For most of his predecessors, acquired inheritance was a side note, an asterisk, an afterthought. Aristotle, for instance, believed that offspring were given form from their fathers and material from their mothers, that ideally every child should be a perfect clone of dear old dad, but that the coolness of mommy's menstrual blood sometimes conquered the sperm, leading to a baby that could look like mother instead or grandma, or grandpa, or even sometimes the Pilates instructor. Oh, and also all that Pilates work could be passed on to your kid. They're all like this. As we talked about at great length in Let's Talk About Sex, Babies, there were dozens of theories of where babies came from and how they got their given characteristics, and barely any of them worked to incorporate soft inheritance, even as almost all of them granted it existed. It is very frustrating. 
Lamarck, in contrast, presented what was arguably the world's first holistic, internally consistent hypothesis for how life passed from generation to generation, and how those generations transmuted into the multiplicity of species alive on the planet. The insight he actually brought to the table was basically orthogenesis again. Though the credit for the notion of directed change would go to all those other guys we talked about and a few more we didn't, it was the real cornerstone of Lamarck's theory. All living things strive, through the generations, towards complexity. Over time, some unknown native force increases the size and number of parts and organs available to a species according to what it needs and diminishes the parts and organs it doesn't. Said unknown native force ascertains those needs based on the use of the thing. A fish that swims a lot will focus power into the fins, and a belly-crawling lungfish will lose them. A hawk that sits at a high distance observing its prey will get better vision. A bat that lives in dark caves and hunts at night will go blind. And those acquired characteristics are passed on to their children. It's a fairly elegant, if unspecific theory, a far cry more concerted and coherent than Aristotle's or Galen's or Erasmus Darwin's, but that's probably not the reason soft heredity became known as Lamarckism, at least not the direct one. By the time Darwin published Origin in 1859, most had either forgotten or discarded Lamarck's theory, but after Darwin published Origin in 1859, people were looking for something, anything, that they could substitute for natural selection. And Lamarck was the only game in town. Orthogenesis was nice, people liked that a lot with its progressive development through time from simple animals to the ultimate goal, humanity, but it lacked a mechanism a method of action. Lamarck, to an arguable extent, provided one. And while the inheritance part of Lamarck's theory wasn't new or particularly detailed, it had something else going for it. It was testable. The latter half of the 1800s saw a big shift in science, from natural philosophers going out and observing, like Darwin had, to scientists working in laboratories. Natural selection was impossible to prove experimentally, giving people who were already disinclined to accept it even more reason. But Lamarckism, or what we should at this point call Neo-Lamarckism, was different. With the right setup, one might be able to show the process of acquired inheritance happening. So, scientists started to try. And this... <laughs> in case you're suspecting it, is where we get into the animal abuse. So if you're not up for that sort of thing, I would suggest uh, skipping forward four or five minutes. The first experiments in the record belong to two opposing views. Lord Francis Galton, Darwin's cousin, who we've talked about a staggering number of times because he ended up being responsible for a whole lot of despicably bad ideas, uh, like eugenics, for starters. Now, Galton was a supporter of his cousin, particularly Darwin's theory of inheritance pangenesis. To try to prove it, Galton got a couple fluffles of rabbits, half black and half white, and transfused their blood. Their descendants, he expected, would reverse colors or be modeled, but instead they were unaffected. 
This might have seen as somewhat of a knock against Lamarckism, but Galton saw it only as a test of Darwin's theory. And Darwin didn't even think it worked on that level, since he had never specified blood as an important transmitter of inheritance in his thinking. The other earliest experiment came from Charles Edouard Brown Saccard, a Mauritian neurologist who at the time was working at Harvard along with Agassiz and Gray. He experimented with guinea pigs, which he caused, or thought he caused, to become epileptic by severing part of their sciatic nerve and spinal column. This epilepsy, he said, was transferred on to a small portion of the manipulated guinea pig's offspring. This seemed like a strong confirmation to many, but there were a few issues with Brown Saccard's experiment. First of all, he didn't use a control group because he didn't know about control groups. And those who have tried to replicate his results have all failed. Whether Brown Saccard had a contaminated herd of guinea pigs with a propensity for epilepsy from the start, or whether his conclusions were instead the result of fraud or confirmation bias or some other sort of contamination is unknown. Worth saying that much later in life, the semi-retired doctor announced to the world that he had found a cure for impotence and aging, which was injecting ground-up bits of guinea pig testicles into his scrotum, a claim that might sound familiar because we've already covered one guy who did the same thing with monkeys and another guy who used goats, since apparently the hope of animal balls rejuvenating tepid men springs eternal. In the 1880s, Gaston Bonnier performed a series of less stomach-churning experiments on alpine plants, which he cultivated at various altitudes to show that they took on specific forms based on how high they were grown, which he attributed to something or things he called cosmic agents. This rapid plasticity indicated to Bonnier that there was a particular brand of extreme neo-Lamarckism at play, that all living things had the power to adapt quickly to new environments, finding new forms and attributes and passing them down to their descendants. Throughout the 1890s, Joseph Thomas Cunningham kept flatfish in an aquarium with a glass bottom, through which he shone strong light on their underbellies. This caused the usually light pigmentation of their bottoms to darken, which Cunningham took as proof of Lamarckian principles. Lots of folks were less confident on this one. Cunningham hadn't proven what made the bellies darken, and he hadn't shown that the new color could be inherited. The American physiologist Charles Claude Guthrie followed up on Galton's rabbit blood transfusion experiment, but in a much more interesting way. He swapped the ovaries of a black and a white hen and said that the resultant chicks were mottled like a blend. But when Charles Davenport tried to replicate the experiment, the white ovaries produced white chicks and the black ovaries produced black chicks. It's generally assumed now that Guthrie's hens either possessed recessive genes for coloration or else they rejected the transplanted ovaries and regrew their own. In summary, the experimental evidence for Lamarckism was mixed until Paul Kammerer showed up on the scene. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? 
Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show has examined weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Thing done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Hammerer showed up just in time to save Lamarckism from extinction. In 1888, August Friedrich Leopold Weissmann delivered a lecture to the German Association of Naturalists, which he entitled The Supposed Transmission of Mutilations. Weissmann announced that he had completed an experiment which seemed to disprove acquired heredity. He had spent a terrifically traumatic few weeks cutting off the tails of 901 lab mice, and then he had bred them. Then he had bred the offspring and the offspring's offspring down for five generations. All the children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and so on were born with full, luxurious mouse tails. Weissman's experiment didn't eliminate Lamarckism from competition entirely. After all, the Lamarckian claim, if you got real technical about it, was that parents passed on traits acquired through use and disuse, not mutilation. But really, how could there be a better case of disuse than total amputation? Anyway, Weissman seemed to show that any sort of pangenesis theory like Darwin's had to be incorrect, that reproductive data was not collected from the body of the parents. Weissman said it was a one-way street, that however exactly the genetic data, or germplasm as he called it, worked, it was on a track. It made two deliveries on its route. It delivered instructions for the building of life, and it delivered those instructions down the line to that life's progeny. But nothing that happened to the parent cells, the soma, could be transmitted back to the germ. With this theory, now frequently referred to as the Weissman barrier, Weissman had become among the very first biologists to deny totally and flat out the possibility of Lamarckism. But his work also seemed to further endanger Darwin's natural selection. If the Weissman barrier held, there had to be a different explanation for evolution. It had to occur via mutations made to the germplasm, rather than through the given traits of parents, since otherwise, new traits would be impossible to arrive at. Darwin, and Lamarck to some degree too, had pictured evolution as a slow-moving, gradual, glacial process, but the results and writings of Weissman and others in the early 1890s presumed the opposite, that species made sudden, extraordinary leaps within even a generation or two. This proposal was sometimes called mutation theory, but I think for our purposes it's better to call it by another name, saltationism. And for a brief brief moment, saltationists looked like the dark horse that would win the race, and a bunch of them went looking for experimental evidence to seal the deal, too. 
At roughly the same moment, three of the saltationists independently stumbled upon the laws of inheritance Mendel had discovered 45 years earlier. And each of them stumbled upon Mendel, too. Just how this happened, how consciously this happened, and to what degree they understood what they were looking at is disputed. But in 1900, Hugo de Vries, Karl Korins, and Eric von Schirmach, looking for proof of mutations, instead published what basically amounted to Mendel's laws of inheritance. This was the beginning of the end for all other theories of speciation and a new beginning for natural selection. Over the course of the next 30 years, a number of biologists now armed with a proper understanding of heredity would come to the conclusion, usually begrudgingly, that Darwin had been right all along and all the way. This would become known as the modern synthesis of Mendelian genetics and Darwinian selection. And we've already talked about this a good deal in the greater good. Anyway, we're not here to examine getting things right, quite the opposite. So let's refocus on Paul Kammerer. And this will be the section that includes the suicide. So if you don't want to hear about that, you might want to skip forward another five minutes or so. Paul Kammerer started out as a pianist. Born in Vienna in 1880, he attended Vienna Academy for Music, but somewhere along the line he got sidetracked and ended up with a degree in biology. In his 20s, he got a job working at the Vivarium in Vienna. He focused on herpetology, the study of reptiles and amphibians. He was a devoted Lamarckian, and he saw his abilities with the former as a prime way of proving the latter. His first experiments were conducted on two species of amphibians, the alpine salamander and the spotted salamander. Spotted salamanders are native to the eastern half of North America. They're usually found in damp lowlands near ponds. The alpine salamander, unsurprisingly, lives in the alpine mountain range, high and dry. But the biggest differences between the two are down to reproduction. The spotted salamander, like most amphibians, mates in water. The females lay eggs, which hatch after a month or two into tadpole-like larvae, which then metamorphose, gaining their limbs and losing their gills after a few more months. The alpine salamander is more of an outlier. They mate on land, for starters, and their young have no larval form. But most anomalous of all, the females give birth to them live. No eggs. They're about as severe an odd couple as you're liable to find within the same phylogenetic class. But Kammerer, the last of the great Neo-Lamarckians, thought that they could be made to see eye to eye. He housed his spotted salamanders in a cold, dry habitat and forced his alpine salamanders into a hot, humid one with plenty of pools. After several attempts, he was able to get the spotteds to mate on land. And instead of giving birth to hundreds of eggs, the females produced two large, live, fully mature babies. The alpines, meanwhile, started mating and giving birth in water to a large number of tadpoles. That's spectacular enough! But then Kammerer took the first generation of offspring, raised them, and watched them reproduce again the reversal of behavior held intergenerationally. Has your jaw dropped? Because your jaw should have dropped by now. Let me give you another experiment, just to make sure. Because Kemmerer ran a bunch, and just about all of them showed what appeared to be sure proof of 
well, if not Lamarckism, then something very similar. The most famous of them all was his work on midwife toads. Midwife toads, like alpine salamanders, are the black sheep of their family. Almost all other toad species mate in water, and most of them have a very violent-looking ritual for it. The males grip the females from behind via what are called nuptial pads, which are kind of like tiny black patches of Velcro just beneath their forefingers. The male clings to the female forcefully as they both kick and bob and reel, fertilizing the eggs until she finally releases them. Midwife toads, however, do things differently. They tend to live in places without a lot of water in which to breed. So, again, like the alpine salamander, they do their nasty business on land. Since the males don't have to worry about the slipperiness of the water, they don't have nuptial pads. Instead, the females release a long, thick, globby clutch of big eggs, which the males sort of wrap around their legs and backs. The males then take this big, awkward, and frankly quite gross-looking string of eggs back to someplace private where he looks after them in the damp for a month or two before finding a wet pond to deposit the tadpoles. You can see where this is going, right? Kammerer forced his midwife toads into a partially aquatic habitat where they would have to either mate in water or else not mate at all. And given the options, they did what any sexually frustrated couple would do. They experimented with water sports. Kammerer reported that his midwife toads mated in water, which is pretty incredible. What's more, the males no longer took the string of eggs and wrapped it around them like an incredibly awkward belt. No, instead, they did things the way most toads did. The female dropped the eggs, the male fertilized them, and then everyone went on their merry ways. But what was most incredible of all was that somehow the males developed nuptial pads. And for each of the next six generations, the length of the experiment, the nuptial pads got bigger and more pronounced. This was like the holy grail of Lamarckism. But it was found at the worst possible time. World War I was devastating Kammerer's Austria, and there was no money to support his research or even preserve it. He had to stuff his midwife toads into bottles of alcohol and flee. When the war ended, Austria was in shambles, and Kammerer went on a lecture tour to try to pay his bills. It was only then, as he traveled through Europe, England, and America, explaining his experiments, that people took notice. But they took a whole lot of it. The New York Times called him a second Darwin. At Cambridge, the zoology department took one of his toads and put it on display. Some columnists openly pontificated about whether it would be possible to use Kammerer's midwife toad procedures to create a race of supermen. Well, how could that go wrong? He was offered a post at the University of Moscow, where a particular brand of Lamarckism championed by Trofim Lysenko, uh, we will get to him some other time, was the official stance of the Soviet Union. Everything was coming up roses for Paul Kammerer and for Lamarckism, which just a few years earlier looked like it was going to be consigned to the dustbin of history. It was now looking like Nobel Prize territory. There were 
naturally some bumps in the road. When curious scientists, either supporters or critics, tried to replicate Kammerer's results, they invariably failed. But this wasn't as damning as it might sound. Amphibians are notoriously difficult to mate under research conditions, and many of the people who tried to repeat Kammerer's experiments couldn't even get past the first step. Kammerer was a decidedly more talented herpetologist than most, and that seemed like proof of his ideas almost in itself. But there were deeper suspicions. William Bateson, one of the earliest advocates for Mendelian inheritance and the modern synthesis, and the first person to use the term genetics in the modern sense, was especially skeptical of Kammerer. When he was unable to perform the Austrian's midwife toad experiment in his lab, he decided to check out the toad for himself at Kammerer's lecture. Bateson said in his notes that the supposed nuptial pads of Kammerer's midwife toad were not very much like those of other water-breeding species. They were in the wrong place. Instead of being between the forefinger and wrist, they were on the palms, which wouldn't help a male hold on during mating. Worse, Bateson didn't see any signs of the raised, rough, Velcro-like texture of nuptial pads. These ones appeared as slick as the rest of the appendages, just blacker. When Bateson requested samples of the nuptial pads for microscopic analysis, he was conspicuously denied. G.K. Noble, an American herpetologist at the American Museum of Natural History, however, was not. He investigated the nuptial pads of one of the toads Kammerer brought to America, and in the August 7, 1926 edition of the journal Nature, he published his results. An examination of the blackened areas under moderate magnification with a binocular microscope revealed that the coloring was not epidermal, he wrote. No trace of spines, points, brushes, or other asperities could be seen. The left wrist of the specimen had been lacerated. A slight pushing aside of the muscles revealed that the ventral wrist muscles and part of the palmar muscles were surrounded by a black coloring matter on all sides. The substance was in such abundance that it readily washed out in the dissecting dishwater, which filled the space between exposed muscles. It was clear that these blackened areas were not nuptial pads. The black substance, so irregularly distributed throughout the muscles, had the appearance of India ink. It has therefore been established, beyond the shadow of a doubt, that the only one of Kammerer's modified specimens now in existence lacks all trace of nuptial pads. They were fake. Injections of India ink and nothing more. Kammerer responded to Noble's article by saying that he was being framed. He had gone back to re-examine the toad and found the India ink as Noble suggested, but he hadn't done it. It must have been an assistant or other third party, either trying to support his research or ruin it. Six weeks later, he sent a letter to the Moscow Academy in which he explained the state of the controversy to his soon-to-be employers. On the basis of this state of affairs, I dare not, though I myself have had no part in these falsifications of my prior specimens, any longer consider myself a proper man to accept your call. I see that I am also in no position to accept this wrecking of my life's work, and I hope I shall gather together enough courage and strength to put an end of my wrecked life tomorrow. He wrote a second note put it in his jacket pocket, and wandered off into the Austrian mountains. He found a comfy rock with a nice view, sat down, and shot himself. 
He and the letter were discovered just after noon on September 23, 1926, by a road worker. The letter began, Dr. Paul Kammerer requests not to be transported to his home in order to spare his family the sight. Simplest and cheapest would perhaps be utilization in the dissecting room of one of the university institutes. I would actually prefer to render science at least this small service. Perhaps my worthy academic colleagues will discover in my brain a trace of the qualities they found absent from the manifestations of my mental activities while I was alive. Since his death, a number of people, particularly the author Arthur Kostler, have tried to rehabilitate Kammerer's reputation. Kostler insinuated that he might have been set up by Nazis because of his commitment to anti-racism and because he was an admitted socialist. But even if that seems to bridge too far, and it does, Kostler was sure he had not committed the fraud and seemed pretty confident that Kammerer's results were real. In the light of the discovery of epigenetics, several scientists have suggested both Kostler and Kammerer were right that Kammerer really could have gotten the midwife toads to grow nuptial pads, the sea squirts to regrow their siphons, the alpine and spotted salamanders to switch places, etc. But alas, all detailed analysis of his experiments and all attempts even to this day at replication have failed. While we can't say for sure that Kammerer is the one who perpetuated the frauds, they were almost certainly frauds by whoever's hands. Given some of the other things known about Kammerer's eccentric and unscientific behavior and thought process, and the convoluted motives necessary to pass the buck to anyone else, it seems pretty safe to say that he did exactly what it appears he did. Faked most, or even all, of his life's work. And whatever small amount that work did to bolster Lamarckism, it did a lot more to finally bury it. By 1930, Darwin was vindicated entirely. Plenty of his detractors and enemies played important parts in eventually discovering he'd been right all along. And hey, I know I said we're not here to talk about people getting things right, but we should really take these last few minutes to appreciate just precisely how Darwin did just that. He held fast to his theory for 23 years, until his death in 1882, while even most of his closest friends and most respected colleagues wavered. And every time someone came up with a new idea or a new problem, he worked out an answer. And usually those answers were right, and generally they were ignored. When Asa Gray postulated that variation couldn't be random, Darwin went to research domestication of animals and discovered a rich tome of evidence showing that animal breeders and horticulturalists alike knew it was exactly that, that orchids, pigeons, dogs, and cattle were all bred through selection because the traits of each new generation were not directed. When Carl von Negeli and Theodore Eimer argued that many traits, like the colors of butterflies and birds, were non-adaptive, Darwin figured out the theory of sexual selection, that animals can develop seemingly non-adaptive or even maladaptive traits to attract mates. When St. George Jackson Mivart pointed out the development of the eye on different occasions by vertebrates and cephalopods, Darwin realized that some traits must come about repeatedly, based on environmental cues and the limited number of pathways available to react to them. 
Darwin even came up with an explanation for the usefulness of the Irish elk's gigantic horns, which was confirmed a full century later by W.D. Hamilton, which we talked about in Heart of Darkness. It's not, I don't believe, that Darwin was smarter than all the rest. A lot of the people in this story were intimidatingly brilliant. Richard Owen had so much brain, it used to be said, that he needed two hats. What distinguished Darwin was his commitment, his commitment to empiricism. So many of the objections to his theory came down to timidity and incredulity. People simply didn't want to believe it. But to Darwin, that didn't matter. He had seen the evidence and worked out the most elegant, useful, and self-evident explanation for that evidence. Whether that explanation made him comfortable, morally, spiritually, philosophically, intellectually, was of no concern. The facts were the facts. Few enough people in all history made the kinds of called shots that Darwin did, but he was by no means infallible. His theory of inheritance was all kinds of bad. His acceptance of acquired heredity was, too. But perhaps his biggest mistake was to do with the fossil record. In 1859, he brushed aside the lack of fossil evidence for evolution as the natural state of affairs. There were too many species and too few fossils, he figured, for us to ever find the so-called missing link. Two years later, he was proven wrong. That is next time on Link Missing Part 3. Music for this episode provided by Epidemic Sound, Lee Rosevear, and Blue Dot Sessions. If you would like to support the making of this show, you're in luck. You can give financially by visiting patreon.com slash the constant and for your trouble, receive access to new episodes early and ad free, as well as monthly bonus stories. As a companion to this series, the new bonus episode is about two animals, the platypus and the barnacle and how their natures vexed two of our star characters, Richard Owen and Charles Darwin. Doesn't that sound neat? I can't promise it will be, because at the moment I'm recording this outro, I haven't completed it yet, but I will soon. And isn't that suspenseful? Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, where a bunch of intellectually curious and ethically irresponsible economists at the University of Chicago melded evolutionary theory into a Frankensteinian monster that still stalks the dark today, this has been The Constant. It was about a century later that the Irish elk got its first real scientific examination and observation from Thomas Molyneux in Dublin. God, I can't say Dublin? It was about a century later that the Irish elk got its first real scientific examination and observation from Thomas Molyneux in Dublin. It's still, I can't. In Dublin. 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 In Dublin.